All right, you guys. Feel the liberty to ask questions. Uh, I put a review together for you, Richard, so I'm certainly grateful that you made it tonight. See, there it is. That's for you. Okay. Let me reinforce. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can go over that. Let me, uh, let me give you the reason again that we're looking at this, I think. And it is that Christianity can be too complicated. And the complication creates a diversification of, of views and stuff. And I think it limits our faith. It's not that they're not true, but there's an anchor point in Christianity that I think we miss if we're not careful. And so that's what this is about. All right. So I changed the PowerPoint up a little bit. I don't know how <laughs> to talk about space and the beginning before the beginning. So you got to come up with something. So here comes God. This is the beginning now. Okay, this is the beginning. And we got those references that come through Revelation. Now think about this. None of these that are on the board right now, none of those needed to exist in the beginning. Because there are all ways that we communicate about God or that He's revealed Himself to us. So everything that we know about God is given to us by way of revelation. None of it's deduced. Not really. Now, unfortunately, we're so used to deducing truth about things that we have a tendency to apply that to God. And that's why you can get people who get a false notion about the the, the, let's say the anger of God or the the offense of God because they deduce it from the historic stories in the in the scripture the revelation scripture but it's important I think and one of the things I'm trying to get us to see is is that all of these particulars and then these that we gather in the New Testament those are all revelations of of who God is but he is who he is independent of those things doesn't mean he's not that but it means we need to keep in mind that he's not coming and going at one moment as Adonai and the next moment as the Logos. And this thing here, I think is totally true. And the reason that I think this is different than those is let's just take uh, like Jehovah Jireh. God is my provider, right? All right, that is a, that is a talk. How you guys... That is a talk, a, 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 a title of God. That's a title of God based upon a characteristic, based upon something that he does. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying these things aren't that. He isn't love because he loves you. He isn't spirit to manifest in a certain way. The scripture says, God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. God is light and God is love. So there's a difference between the category of understanding about someone that comes from what they actually are versus what they do. And I'm not saying that the, what they do names aren't correct. I think there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of faith to have in that way. But uh, the spirit, God is spirit. He is fire. He is light. 
He is love, and He is love again. And so, the point of that is, what kind of God are we going to put our trust in? What kind of God are we going to build our expectations on? Uh, I'm not saying that we can't glean things and have faith on those other particulars. But what I'm saying is the bedrock of who God is, and He's never not that. He's never not that, are those four things right there. Okay? All right, so that's the God that decided to create. So in the beginning, God who is love, spirit, fire, light, and again love, created the heavens and the earth. Now that's the first verse in the Bible. You know, uh, it's always a little nerve-wracking adding commentary in the middle of the Scripture when you're writing it. So the who is love, spirit, fire, light, and again love, obviously is my words. I'm not saying that that's inspired, but I'm saying that it's true. And think about this. This statement, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've spent all kinds of time being taught. I've spent all kinds of time studying about that word God is Elohim, so there's a plural implication there, blah, 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 blah. But there's more to learn about what to expect and how to interpret what comes after this. If we realize that God is a double dose of love, spirit, fire, and light. The way he reacts to Adam and Eve's fall. Are we allowing it to be governed by who he is? Or are we looking for that action, looking for that uh, supposed, like the cursing of of her uh, pain in pregnancy or the ground being cursed and Adam having to work? Are we trying to discern who God is out of that? Or can we afford to go back and say, no, I know who God is. Through the whole revelation of Scripture, all this stuff is accumulated and he's, he's love. And he's also fire and spirit and able to deal in those areas in light. And I think the answer is yes. And I think it changes the way we can think about God, the way we can think about him today, the way we can think about him and our expectations about tomorrow. So the reason I switched is uh, last time, remember, it was white. Okay. So anyway, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters, but we can't see it, right? So... Because it's, and then God said, let there be light. Boing! All right. There's supposed to be a little earth down there, but it was too light and it doesn't show up on the, on that screen. All right. So here's, here's this situation. Now we're thinking about the beginning of you and I, the beginning of mankind. God wanted to make men and the one he made them. So like, here's the first application that I'm impacted by about this idea of pushing our knowledge of God that came through the revelation all through Scripture, and particularly of Jesus, and that God is spirit, God is fire, God is light, and God is love, love. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Now, how many of you have sat under teaching or pondered it yourself or led a Bible study and talked and tried to describe what it means that man's made in the image of God. I have dozens of times. Yeah, we're triunes, one of the common ones, right? Body, soul, and spirit, God's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know how those correlate necessarily, but, you know, it's that kind of thing. God's creative, we're creative. I'm not saying that these things aren't at all true, but what if we are made 
in the image and likeness of God, who is spirit and fire, light, and a double dose of love. Now, we've been studying image bearing feverishly for a few months, and it's still not clear to me 100% and to others I know. But I'm really close to being willing to bet my hopes of my own image-bearing capability on that image. I don't think I'm going to be Ruah. I don't think I'm going to be Logos. But I do think I'm going to be love. And I do think I'm going to be light. Jesus said so, right? I mean, this is getting simpler. If you let him... If you, if you let this go back and be the anchor, you are the light of the world. And then he said, I'm the light of the world. Actually, he said, I'm the light of the world first. Then he said, and you're the light of the world. I always thought that that was an outrageous comparison. Because I didn't see that the one who was spirit, light, fire, and love, love, also was the one that made me in his image. And you in his image. So anyway, that's one of the benefits that I think if we trace this back there. So God said that and he made them. Aren't they cute? And then the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, right? Unfortunately, the serpent was crafty. Er. (laughs) And he said to the woman and she took and she ate and gave to her husband. And then this horrible thing happened. What was it? Death. Darkness. Now, I don't know exactly what death is. And I've got a bunch of guys that are pondering it right now. Had a call with Paul uh, Richards yesterday. That was his question. I had a a meeting with a group of pastors on Monday that were trying to come up with a a simple, understandable, functional definition of what death is. Uh, You know, the old one's about separation from God. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, in the sense that God separates himself because then we'd, we'd cease to exist. And then cease to exist isn't good, because a whole lot of things go on after you're dead, you know, after they died. But what if it relates to somehow losing our capacity to bear that image of love, losing that capacity to, to engage with the spirit part of life? I don't know. So anyway, as a result of that, they got kicked out. Was that cool or what? Oh well, they're not. Huh? <laughs> they're not. <laughs> no, they didn't get kicked. They got. They they were put out of the garden, and then they started to multiply. And obviously, there could be a million scriptures that this all talks about. And it went along like this, and then it started growing. And but look, notice what was happening. They're all living where? In the dark. They're all living in the dark. And God is still love, and he's still light. And so that's probably part of the sense of alienation, that sense of that in in the New Testament was exacerbated all up to the point where Paul said uh, that you were without God and without hope in this world. But then in a dozen other places, he he said God's with us, you know, the Holy Spirit's here, all this kind of stuff. But then a couple, one in particular, but a couple came up, and they were a little bit different, and that's Abraham and Sarah. There was something about being connected in ways that others were not. And God called them, and that's why his head is up there in that God circle. <laughs> yes, Jim. 
So in this darkness, are you just stating that because God is still spirit, love, fire, that they just don't see it? Yeah, that, or they fear the it. Explanation of darkness. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't know exactly 100, percent but something like that. In other words, there was a. Uh, there's a passage that I've got up here uh, in just a minute that talks about the dilemma of the darkness, and it's in Isaiah that your sins have created a, a barrier between you and your God, so that uh, you can't, you know, hiding His face for you to hear or for you to see. So that the problem's on our side for sure, because he's still the same God. He hadn't changed. But but there is something about the darkness that creates alienation. There's something about that. And I'm just curious if that goes back to deception or yeah, what? Mm -hmm. Me too. And 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 there's no doubt that fear was there because they said, you know, they were afraid. But then Abraham so God breaks through this darkness with Abraham, right? And he, he talks to him and says, Hey I want you to, to leave your, your uh, land. I want you to leave your relatives. And I want you to follow me wherever I go. And he mostly did that. He took Lot with him, and that caused a lot of trouble. But um, yeah, he was Abram first. Abram. And uh, Abram and Sarai. But God was definitely engaging them for a purpose. And <clears throat> so this is going to be too quick an illustration to follow. But... So Abraham, Abram, through a couple of false start type things, and then with Isaac, he created a people according to the blessing that God was going to give him there in Genesis 5. I'm going to make a, a nation of you. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. But these people that have this little glow around them, that's the children of Israel. And they're down there stuck in Egypt, right? So then another guy came, and really, this guy should be down there too, but I didn't know how to illustrate it and make it move and all that stuff. So anybody know who that is? It's Moses. That's Moses. All this is still going on in the dark. All this is still going on now, somehow connected with Yahweh, somehow connected with the God who is. All those things that we looked at, but he's also spirit, fire, light, and love. And this is the context we're now starting to understand. And you could, if you want, say, well, yeah, he was up on the mountain. Anyway, he ended up delivering those people, right? And the glow increased. Their identity began to change. It began to be more and more connected. As a matter of fact, it was even so connected that something incredible happened. You remember what it was? When they built the tabernacle, God himself... His presence, His Shekinah glory, was in their midst. Now, we could get lost. We could get stuck in the trails of Messianic Christianity. We could get on the particulars of all the fun things that we do there. But we would lose, we can lose if we're not careful, the connection that this is all still going on in the dark. And it's all still going on under the God who is spirit, fire, light, and love, and love. But anyway, so that's sort of the situation that you find in the nation of Israel. So that's the review of what we looked at last week. And the point of the review is that love is what and who created. 
Love is what and who begin to manage the development of humanity, even through the horrific things of every thought and intent of their heart being evil. Because of the darkness, because of the deception, because of the fear, because of the alienation, because of the blindness. I, I just don't know, you know. But in the fullness of time, love returns. So part two is what we're going to concentrate on tonight. And it sets the foundation in that chicken scratch illustration for what the responses can be. So the God who is love is also the motive and means of redemption, not just creation, but redemption, same God. All right, so here's how the situation kind of looked at the time of after Israel, but a little before Christ. I'll track it with you. I made the, the, the symbol of God. It's the same God, but I, it's, it's a little more distant. There's a little more room between him and Adam. There's a little more room between him and Moses on the mountain. By the time we're getting close to the time of Jesus, a couple of things have happened. Of course, Abraham has passed away. There's still the people of Abraham. Abraham's our father, right? But they're still in the dark. Moses is gone. And the rest of the population is starting to encroach. Israel's not that completely isolated, set-apart, promised land people anymore. Matter of fact, there's been exiles, there's been all this kind of stuff. And if you remember one of the horrible truths, and it's unfortunate that, that Jen's not here tonight because we might be able to get in an argument about this, but nevertheless, and I, we'll follow it up on Tuesday if we need to, even the presence of the Lord pulled out of the temple, of the tabernacle. And so at the time of Jesus, this is closer to what was going on, except that now, however you want to characterize this encroachment, the Greeks and the Maccabean Wars uh, encroached and controlled uh, you know, the Syrians and so on, or in this case, it could be the Romans. The Jewish people are still there. They've still got that connection. They're still worshiping. They've still got that little glow. But God's pretty distant. The, the temple is still there, but there's no Shekinah presence that they've recorded. They're just, they're hanging in there. But that's sort of the condition of things that I see that God needed to invade the darkness. So this is what it says in Young's Literal. Uh, Isaiah 59.1 Lo, the hand of Jehovah has not been shortened from saving, nor heavy as ear from hearing, but your iniquities have been separating between you and your God, and your sins have hidden the presence from you from hearing. And I, I'll never teach this again out of any translation other than Young's Literal, because New American Standard, New International, they all translate that God hid himself from you or God hid his face from you. I just don't think that's the truth. I don't. I think that sin has a way of putting scales on our eyes. And it has a way of stopping up our ears. Absolutely. So, now, this is the beginning two verses of Isaiah 59. Here are the beginning two verses of the very next chapter of that prophecy. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. 
God's still God. He's still love. He's still spirit. He's still fire. He's still light. He's still love. He's still Yahweh. He's still Logos. He's all that. But all of the world is going on, multiplying, doing their thing, ruling, falling, warring, rebelling, worshiping in a kind of darkness. And the answer is suddenly somebody appeared. I put the shawl on him for your sake, Tim, the red sash. I needed something. I needed something to mark him, you know, so I thought, well, yeah, why not the red sash or the gold sash? And, and I didn't have gold on the thing. It's hard to get in metallic colors. So here's this guy. He, he doesn't look that much different than everybody. But as time goes on, something is different about him, right? Something is different. He's connected. Nicodemus says, we know that no one can do what you do without being from God. And so then, you know, we could illustrate a million things, but it'd be better for you to go watch The Chosen. Ronnie said the first two episodes are good in the theaters. So this is where the second phase, this is where we've got to pay attention when we're thinking about redemption. When we're thinking about being saved, when we're thinking about Jesus, the incarnate one, rescuing. Because now God comes down again. Not just as a little representation in the middle of Israel's temple, but as Jesus. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus became a life-giving spirit. And he said, I'm going to ask the Father, and the Spirit's going to go. And the Spirit makes room in our hearts for Jesus. So the whole of, of the God who is spirit and light and fire and love and love has now come down, but he took on a new form. And I was thinking, you know, almost always you would illustrate that on the cross. But I think the crown of thorn illustrates it just as well because the, the, the symbol's sort of the same. He's one, but he's all this in the one. So here's what that invasion, and, you, and take the whole thing, take the incarnation, take Jesus' teaching and ministry, Take Jesus' revelation of the Father. Take Jesus dying, drawing us into himself, rising again. And, and I haven't got that. We won't get to the ascension part yet. Well, we will in another couple of slides. But <clears throat> here's the effect of this invasion by who? By God, right? By the same God who created. The same God who spoke creation into existence out of nothing. Light is beginning to dispel darkness. Light is beginning to dispel darkness. And depending on how much more clever I could get with PowerPoint, we could start showing things in the hearts of all these people popping up, sharing, speaking how, how uh, blessed it is for those, uh, how blessed are the feet of those who share good news. But do you see... So here's what I want to see. I want to see the spectacular overcoming of darkness. Now, if you'll think with me for a while over our trying to understand this in the context of N.T. Wright stuff, when he talks about at the cross, new creation started, that's what he's talking about in a sense, is this process started. Now, watch it again. It starts small, right? It starts here and there. It's coming. 
And if I were really to illustrate this properly, I would have, in that little box that said delay instead of seven seconds, I would have put like 24 hours. And <laughs> we'd all been sitting here going, hey, look, there's another little spot of light popping up. There's another little bit of darkness being dispelled. But the thing I like about this, okay, if we keep this idea that it's the same God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Logos, the Theos, the Numa, the Son, the Father, our God, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, all of this stuff. The same one that created the world is the one redeeming the world. And it's no, it's not from a different act. It's the same, it's from love. And, and so, okay, so now we're going to look at it a little bit. All right, so love created, commissioned, and rested. That's a review of the creation part, right? Uh, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image, and he goes on down. And I'm going to read that because I just want us to track with the things. And So here it is in Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has its fruit yielding seed and it should be food for you and every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work on which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So all I want us to see out of that is the same God we encounter in Jesus is the God who made us in the first place. The ability to see ourselves living in the image of Jesus should be a clue that we're made in the image of God. And I don't think the image is the rainbow. (laughs) I think the image is that we're spirit. We have a spirit. We are spirit. We, we are capable of engaging the spiritual world. That we are light. Jesus said so. When somebody asked me at the Tuesday Bible study, I have a hard time thinking myself imaging fire. And Tim, your question was a great one when you said, are you going to expand on these more? I didn't think I was going to, but when you asked the question and we started talking about it a little bit, I think we need to, because I think that's what's being revealed. I think that's what's being revealed. And I think one of the reasons that we don't have uh, the kind of faith that we, we long for in praying for the sick, even though we're having some cool results, is because we're neglecting elements of our core image of this stuff. And I think there's, I think love is extremely powerful. I think the Spirit allows penetration to every level. I think light allows proper judgment, proper illumination. And uh, and I think fire changes things. It burns stuff up in us and around us. 
So if we are, if, if we bear this image, we don't have to reduce our intercessory relationship to God, to that of needy beggars. We are working with him and the resources that he has. John 1, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He made everything that's been made. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I don't need to read the whole thing, but it's that part that in love God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, it has always said that, and I've studied that for 40 years. But now I understand more than I ever have in that whole 40 years that what it's talking about is that that God, the God who is spirit, fire, life, light, and love, and love, is the one that predestined us to be conformed to that very same image because the one to whom we are conformed is that, is Him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Okay, so that same love now, this is us now studying the gospel. This is us assuming our role as image bearers in the world around us today. This is us being uh, those that preach and declare the gospel. That same love, exact same love, was sent, was made sin, and was saved. So this is, this is the summary kind of, of part two of this thing I think the Lord's trying to build in me and build in us, is that even though the form, the shape, that love was required to take is different. It's a cruciform shape now, rather than a burning on the top of the mountain shape. But they're both the same God. They're both the same thing. And they both are fully engaged in the same purposes. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And then I do want to read the part about, about uh, the rest down to 19, because it's a part that we leave off because we're so familiar with that other. But, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So do you understand, do you understand how this is not just a redemption scripture? This is a reflection on the purpose of creation in the first place? I didn't put it up there, but he said to, to, to the serpent. He said it to the serpent. He didn't say it to Eve, per se. He said it to the serpent, I think. Maybe he was talking to Eve when it was going on. But they're going to put enmity between her seed and your seed. And your seed's going to crush his, or going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. This same one that was sent and made love was promised from the very, very beginning when darkness first settled on the creation that love made. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear of his deeds being exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, 
so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Hammered out, built in God. The purpose of redemption is so that we can know that we're in that God. So that people can have that realization swell up in them. Okay? And then the last one in First John is the one that most is going to dictate what is it that we're required to do. You guys remember when we did the uh, Gospel Meta Narrative Worksheet? I went through that again this week, and I was just so grateful for what the Lord had shared with us. Because <clears throat> it fits into this thing in ways that I obviously didn't have any idea would. So I'm going to read the whole section starting at 7 through 19. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now that says something, Jen, about the question you ask. It's, it's, the, it's the lack of knowledge of God. And of course, then the prophetic promises is that the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So it's one program that love is being revealed by love, through love, to people he loves, and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins or the, the mercy seat for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. That is just a simple, unarguable statement of logic. If God loved me this much, I should love you. How are we supposed to think about people? How am I supposed to think about my new congressman? Well, if God loved me, I probably should love her. She's a congresswoman, I suppose. I don't know how you say that. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So what I could do in that little illustration after Jesus came is I could put a big L in somebody's head, right? Meaning that they have chosen to believe love, to know love, and to love. And then I could squeeze that little symbol down and put it in their heart. That's what it says. It says that if I love you, God abides in me. The unseen God, the God no one has seen. Or we could just argue over God. <laughs> and we could argue over our version of God. And we could come up with a list of criteria that proves that we're in and you're not. But that's probably foolishness, actually, now that I think about it. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There comes our testimony. There comes our voice. And this is in perfect agreement with what Paul said. With your heart you believe, with the mouth you confess. We have come to know 
and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. So that's the first point. What is the object? What is the appropriate response to the gospel? What is the appropriate response to the God who is spirit and fire and light and love, love, taking on a crown of thorns? It is to know we are loved. And it is to be free to love other people. And that is the only way you are free to love other people, is if you know you're loved. Because if you're in a competition with someone else, it's hard to love them. So we're using that word know a lot. Mm -hmm. So do you have a, a, we're talking knowledge, we're talking a different kind of knowing. yeah. Uh, well, you know, yeah, and stay here. So Jesus used it quite a lot. In that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father, you're in me, I'm in you. John used it again. It's a not, yeah, it has to be, it has to be an awakening. It has to be an awareness. It has to be an assurance. It has to be something that, now the scripture does, does say that uh, like in Romans, and I think this is important to the, to the point, Paul says, he talks about confessing, and he talks about believing, and he says, because with the heart, a man believes under righteousness. And so I think that knowledge, that belief is a heart-centered issue. I think it's allowing our image, our being made in his image, to be touched and to be awakened. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, that the Holy Spirit makes room in our heart for Jesus to dwell, to live. So, and then um, Jesus said, if you, you know, keep my commandments, uh, my Father and I will come and dwell in you, abide that way. So I think, uh, I, I I don't think it's just an, uh, just an acknowledgement. Yeah. That's probably part of it. But I think it's, a gnosko Greek concept of knowing where you know through experience, you know through embrace, you know through contact. What do you think? I I think so too. When we were talking about darkness and what that meant, I think we used the word lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I wondered now with the light goes beyond just knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the lack of knowledge is probably... That knowledge is probably the loss of something deeper, the loss of of uh, that natural reaction that a child has to do this when his parent comes up. That's what I think Adam and Eve lost more than just the. I mean, they obviously didn't lose the knowledge of the fact of God's existence because they hid from it. So they lost the knowledge that He was love, the knowledge that He was. All of that. But isn't that knowing that we see a lot in the New Testament is that real intimate kind of knowing? Yeah, yeah, most of it is. Most of it is experiential, experiential, intimate, relational knowing. And then, of course, this prepares us for judgment, too. And that means that love, which, of course, totally makes sense, because who is the governing and driving entity that is going to determine the end of days. Well, that would be God, right? The same God that started them. The God who is spirit 
the God who is light, the God who is fire, and the God who is a couple of doses of love. That means that our eschatological expectations, which is the next part of this, what do we have to do to receive this? What do we have to do to live in it? We have to come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And that's the last part here, this section in John. Um, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And it goes on down to say, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That's how love prepares us for judgment. And what is judgment? Judgment is just the light of the God who is love. So we can walk into that. We can say, judge me, Lord. Judge me. And not do so in fear. All right. So what should we expect from love that creates? Now, this little symbol is a combination of those two things. I don't know if you can tell that or not, but uh, it's it, it's what happened after love came down and went back up. And I'll show you the, the scripture of that in just a moment. But this is the one I'm using for what's going on right now. All of that that was accumulated with Moses and all of that, and David and all through there, that's encapsulated in that throne in the middle. And the promise that someone from David's seed would be on the throne forever. The uh, the circles are still there. The thorns are still there. And then all of these characteristics added to that is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, again, linking back all the way to creation and up to the future, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah pulling all the promises of Israel up to it. So I'm not against the Messianic stuff in any way, shape, or form, but I'm, there's no reason to tackle it apart from the God who is love, all the stuff that's going on. So uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 is we're predestined in love to be conformed. We should expect that. What that means is before you were ever made, God predestined you and me to become like Jesus. And the people that you're praying for, the people that you're witnessing to, your new Congress people, all that stuff, they too are predestined to be. So there is an enormous force, especially when you think about God not being some kind of monarch sitting back and just making edicts, but being love who is patient, who is kind, who doesn't seek its own, who culminates there in 1 Corinthians 13 by saying love never fails. I don't know what to do with that, except believe it. Because I can't explain it. I don't know how he's going to do that. But I can believe it. I can. And it's fun to, actually, when you think of it in that terms. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Uh, that's the section where God created everything. I've got it on the next screen. We'll see the whole scripture. But where God created everything with one thing in mind. One thing that, that, that he says, this is the goal. And that one thing is that he would be all in all. That's what it promises. That's the quintessential eschatological statement in the New Testament, not Revelation. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. That God will be all in all. John 17, 26 is where Jesus says that God is going to love, the Father is going to love us with the same love he loved him. And three or four verses before, he said that love which you had and the glory you gave me before the foundation of the world, it's all connected right back to that original love. First Timothy 2.4, it's no wonder that it says that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
He made them to be that way from the beginning. And Acts 3.19, it's no wonder that the accumulation of prophecies says that it leads to the restoration of all things and the particular that Jesus has to be in heaven now. And that's kind of what that image is about. So what do we learn about love who redeems? Well, 1 John 4.16, we learn that we are loved. And the thing that makes that real is that we come to know it and believe it. We aren't blind to it. We aren't ignorant to it. We aren't missing the knowledge of it, disconnected from the knowledge of it. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, this is why Paul prays, I pray that you would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now there's an interesting one. Paul had the expectation that allowed him to frame a prayer that allowed us to know that which was not, that should be unknowing. And that's the love. Because there's something of a relationship there. There's something of a heart thing there. It's not just a head knowledge, you know. It's like seeing the God who nobody's seen. John 13, 34. The simplicity of what Jesus said the new commandment is. And then he based a whole bunch of stuff on it. He goes on talking. He says, you know, you need to keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, the Father and I will abide with you. And da-da-da-da-da. The new commandment is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's because he loved us the way the Father loved us when he created us. And he loved us the way the Father loved us as he sustained us through all those years of darkness. He loved us as the Father loved the children of Israel when he took his Shekinah glory and abode in the midst of them in the tabernacle under the pillar of fire and under the column of smoke. First Timothy 1.5. That's why Paul says, I teach a lot of things. And uh, Peter even knows that I teach him complicatedly. <laughs> but the goal of all this instruction is love from pure heart, sincere faith. Love's a pretty big deal in the Bible. First John 4, 17, I mentioned that earlier. Love prepares us perfectly for judgment. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to build an understanding of our response to love taking on the form of the cruciform. And our expectations are going to come out of what God made the world for as we build our eschatology. And all of it is because this is the backbone of the universe. Or as we said uh, a couple weeks ago, the centerpiece. The God who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. So our next focus is until then, until when, well, this is what Acts comes up. He's going to be reigning through us. And this is the ultimate hope I have in this series. I think God has answered some prayers that a lot of us have been praying for a long time. And he's showing us a way to bring our hearts into alignment so that he can be in us and through us with the people around us. And I expect to see people healed. I expect to see people born again. I expect to see us live lives of fuller joy and so on. So here's here's the future focus. Therefore, repent, return. This is Peter's first announcement of the gospel. The first preaching of the gospel after they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord himself, who is love. Light, fire, life. 
and love. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And then this is the Corinthian passage. Just listen to this in the context of one continuous, connected, love-motivated, God-given purpose from creation to redemption to restoration. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What does that say about how we can pray and think about enemies? Can we acknowledge that they're even God's enemies? Yeah, I think we can. We have to be careful because we have to think like him if we're going to use those words and put our heart in that direction. But their destiny, like ours, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And they, like we, had to go through a stage where our rebellion had to be brought under his feet. If we think properly about this, this idea of who God is and love having the, the dominant influence because of his character from the beginning all the way through the end, we're not going to be thinking that that's going to be some time where we're standing on the sidelines cheering as he's grinding their face into the pavement. That's probably not the way it's going to look. <laughs> because there's, there's two ways to overthrow an enemy. Uh, one is to destroy them. The other is to turn them into a friend. One, you, well, in both you have a victory of sorts. But one, the victory is at the expense of another, and I'm not sure God's willing to do that. So definitely the victory that I think he wants, now maybe he can't get it, it's possible, I suppose, but the one he wants is to turn them into a friend. And you can see it in Nebuchadnezzar, you can see it in Darius, you can see it in Cyrus, you can see it in Naaman the Syrian, you can see it in Paul. <laughs> you can see it in Paul. Yeah. And we get we get caught up with the uh, trampling of the winepress of the wrath of God and the horror being cast down to the point that we lose touch with who we're talking about doing that. The one who is love and light and fire and life and uh, love again. Okay, anyway, let me finish reading this. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And that's what I was trying to, the point I was trying to make with that couple of verses ago. That when the, the, when the infant thought, if that's an appropriate way to talk about God having something, when the initial thought was forming in, in words, let there be light, to create the cosmos. It was in light of and with this in mind that God could be all in all. That's what we're a part of. And for somehow, if we can keep this, who God is, the centerpiece in all of these various epochs, all of these various eras, all of these various dispensations, well, no. That's part two. All right. Well, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, 
I thank you that everybody that is within the sound of my voice right now knows you, loves you, has submitted their lives to you, and they know that you are love. We've talked about it enough to also be pretty sure that your spirit, and even though it's a little scary and we don't fully understand how that works out both toward us and from our own image of you, your fire that consumes and your light that reveals. So, Lord, we don't shrink back from bearing your image. We don't shrink back from exercising these parts of us that you have made in your image. We confess freely that we don't fully know how to engage them. We don't fully know how to steward them. But we know that you, Jesus, have committed and you've sent the Holy Spirit to help us. And so we believe that we can. And we ask for your help. We ask that you would increase our understanding and we pray along with Paul that we would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your blessing for us, of your call for us, of your love for us, and that we would know the love of Christ, which by every measure goes beyond knowing. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for restoring that image and for us being in the process of that image restoration and help us to walk with you in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 